Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. We're going through 1 Samuel, and we're all the way through chapter 22. We're going to pick up a 23 and 24 today. Just a quick recap. Saul is currently king over Israel. He was the first king anointed over Israel, and he was not a good king. But the interesting thing about the story is that Saul is cast as a bad guy, but he's not all bad. There are some moments where you see good in him early when he first took the throne, like when he first saved some of the surrounding cities as some of the first things that he did as becoming king. And then you have David. David is anointed as king, but he's not king yet. And David is cast as a good guy, but as we'll find out as he goes through taking the throne, he's not all good. And the value of understanding this shapes the way that we see the world today. All of the people that you look up to in this life are flawed. They're filled with sin. They're not perfect people. And if you build your life fixing your eyes on someone in this world, I don't care if it's your pastor or your dad or your grandpa, if your eyes are fixed on someone in this world who has faults and your source of strength comes from a person who has faults, you will be let down. If you haven't yet, it's coming, trust me. It's only a matter of time. And so the value of this story as we enter into it is there's these characters that are presented before us that give us a way to look towards the good things God is asking us to do and how we're supposed to be living. There's this ambition that we have towards, towards I, I wanna follow this guy in the way that he loved God but I can't fix my eyes on him as the ultimate hope. I can't just say everything this person did is the way I wanna live my life because they're filled with faults. And so the entire story is structured in a way that you're presented this good king, but he has these faults and it, it creates inside of you this desire to wanna say, I want a better king than that. He's a great king, but like I want a king that's greater than that. This is what it did for Israel, as they're reading through these stories, and this is what it's doing for us. It's reminding us that you can't put your hope in earthly leaders because they will let you down. If your hope is in anything but the Lord, you will be disappointed. And so that's kind of the frame, it's like the picture frame for the whole story. This is the boundary lines. As you start reading through this, you're constantly reminded these great characters, these people who we look up to, they had faults. And it creates inside of you this sense where, all right, well, if, if, I, if I'm striving to be like this person and this person's letting me down, then, then there's, there must be something else I can strive for. And then all of a sudden, this king through the line of David shows up and his name is Jesus. And he is a perfect king, all right? So that's kind of the framework for the story as we go through it. And David is learning a lot of things. So you've got Saul that's king. David is going to be king. Saul finds out that David is going to be king because he's been anointed. And Saul doesn't like it, so Saul wants to kill David. And David is out hiding in the wilderness. Now you've been caught up for the first 22 chapters of, of 1 Samuel. We're gonna enter into 1 Samuel 23 today, but before we do, I wanna show you a map to kind of get oriented for where we are in the story today, because a lot of us aren't familiar with geography, um, and a lot of us aren't familiar with geography in the Middle East. So what I wanna do is I wanna start off with uh, a, a map of Israel in this region, kind of giving you a sense for where we're gonna be going today. So you've got uh, the Dead Sea over here, uh, Mediterranean Seas over here. We're kind of zoomed in more than we have been in the past couple weeks. But what you're looking at, we're all familiar with Gibeah. That's Saul of Gibeah. That's Saul's hometown. That's also the capital city. That's where he's ruling from. That's right up here. You can always remember it's just a little bit north of Dead Sea and then west. So this is Gibeah. David is, so this is where Saul is. David is currently hiding out in different caves in southern Israel. He's been in the cave of Adullam. Today, he starts over in this cave over in Hereth. Now, while he's, while he's there, he's gonna find out that there are some people over in the city of Keilah, which is just right over here, southwest. 
that are in trouble. The Philistines are gonna come over and start attacking Keilah. Well, David goes from Hereth over to Keilah to save the people of Keilah. Saul finds out that he's down in Keilah. Then David flees, he goes over to the wilderness of Ziph. Saul finds out that David is in the wilderness of Ziph and he comes down and starts looking for him. So Saul eventually comes down here. You've got David coming over from here and there's this situation in Ziph where they almost meet up with each other but then they don't. David then flees to the wilderness of Maon and eventually ends up in Engedi, and that's where our story is going to end today in 1 Samuel 24. Saul has eventually come back down and they meet up in this cave in Engedi. So just kind of imprint that on your mind as you're going through, and when you hear these locations mentioned, now you kind of understand how far apart they are and where they are. With that in mind, let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 23, and we're going to start off in verse 1. Now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? And then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him again, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Let's pause right there. So David is hiding out in the wilderness with his men, and he hears that the Philistines, who are the enemy, have now come over to a nearby city named Keilah, and they're ravishing the city. The threshing floors are kind of the area where the crops come in, and what's happening here is that the city of Keilah has done all the planting, They've done all the watering, all the cultivating. Now the crops have grown up. It's time for harvest, and the Philistines rush in, and they they take all the food. It's kind of a genius way if you're going to be an enemy, right, to, to feed your army and not have to do any work. Well, that leaves the people of Keilah, who are Israelites, they're left without food. And David hears of this, and he has to decide, am I going to go do something about this, or I'm just going to let this neighboring city suffer from the Philistines? So what happens here, and this is kind of, this presents us with the same, the first important detail of the story, what happens is God, David asks the Lord, all right, Lord, what do I do about this situation? Should I go and help the city or should I just sit back and not do anything? And the Lord says the first time, go and save the city. So David goes to his men and says to his men, hey, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna go down the street, we're gonna help this town out and his men freak out. Whoa, David, we're not helping anybody. We can barely help ourselves. I don't know if you noticed or not, but we live in a cave. Nobody has homes. We had to flee our homes. Like, we don't need to be going to some nearby town saving them when we can barely save ourselves. We're afraid. And so David goes back a second time and inquires of the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation? Because now I've been presented with conflicting uh, opportunities. You told me I had an opportunity to go save the day and help the city, and my men are telling me, no, that they're, they're afraid of this opportunity. They don't want anything to do with it. So, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord says a second time, go and save the city. So David is presented with the opportunity. Okay, now the Lord has said twice, go and save the city, but his men are afraid. This is one of the first lessons that David is learning as he's in the wilderness. Now, I talked about this last week, and this is kind of, there's a reason why I'm structuring our messages between now and the end of uh, 1 Samuel uh, this way, because I see this season in David's life kind of like him going to college. It's a terrible college, but it is a college that is going to prepare him for the job that he's gonna get when he takes the crown. He's gonna become king one day, and God wants David to rule the way God wants him to rule and not the way that man would rule or the way that Saul has ruled. 
See, previously Saul has ruled in such a way that is very selfish and self-centered. It's also he rules in a way that is very insecure. He's constantly listening to what his men have to say and he doesn't listen to what God has to say. And that's one of the reasons why the Lord has departed from Saul. So Saul has the crown, but he doesn't have the Lord. David doesn't have the crown, but he does have the Lord. And this is one of those tests in college. It's almost like it was a pop quiz. He wasn't expecting it. David, here's the test. Who are you going to follow? Are you gonna listen to the word of the Lord, or are you gonna listen to the fear and insecurities of man? Now these lessons that shaped David's heart also shape our hearts as well. Because this lesson doesn't just stand on its own, it's a lesson that's asking of us to consider. And here's the lesson. Wise leaders trust the word of God, not the fear and manipulation of the world. Now some of you in here, you wouldn't classify yourself as a leader. I'd like to challenge that a little bit because whether you realize it or not, somebody's watching you. Somebody's following you. You may not ever know who that is until you enter into glory and you get to see things all clearly, but somebody is watching you. Somebody's following you and paying attention to what you do. Some of you in this place are, you, you started your own business, so you, you run an organization. Some of you are managers in, in whatever workplace you're in. Some of you are in a classroom, and it doesn't matter what what the situation is, you always seem to be some kind of leader in a classroom. The teacher says, let's group, split up in group projects, and all of a sudden, like, you always seem to be the one who's just telling everybody else what to do, because it always just falls to you. This is an important lesson. It wasn't just important for David. This is important for all God's people. God's people don't listen to the fear and manipulation that this world sends our way. We listen to one thing and one thing only, and that is the Word of God. This word structures our life, it gives us roots, it tells us what's true and what's not, it tells us what's good and what's evil. The world doesn't define good and evil, God's word does. All right, so that's the first lesson. Let's get into the second one. First Samuel 23, we're gonna start in verse six. It says, when Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with the ephod in his hand. That's important because this is context for how David has been able to ask the Lord all these questions. Now this is a story that happened in last week, 1 Samuel 22, when, all the, when Saul asked uh, Doeg the Edomite to kill all of the priests, one priest escaped and came to David, but then we're told that he didn't just escape and come to David, he came to David with the ephod the priestly robes, and in the priestly robes are these two rocks called the Urim and the Thummim, and this is what people in the Old Testament used in order to ask God questions. Lord, do I do this? Yes or no? And, these, and God would move on these stones to give answers. Well, guess what? Saul's desire to want to pursue David and kill anybody that's standing in his way has now provided the way for the thing that people would use to talk to God to actually fall into David's hands. So this is the context for how David's actually doing what he's doing. He's consulting the priesthood through the ephod. Verse seven, now it was told Saul that, Saul, excuse me, now it was told Saul that David had come down to Keilah and Saul said, well, God has given him into my hands for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Isn't that delusional? God has given him into my hand. So Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah to, to besiege David and his men. So David and his men are trapped in this city. They've just saved the city, and Saul's gonna use this opportunity to seize David. Verse nine, David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please Tell your servant, for the Lord, and the Lord said to him, he will come down. Yeah, Saul will come. And then David said, well, 
will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, yes, they will surrender you. Then David said to his men, who were about 600, excuse me, David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up his expedition. All right, now the second important detail of the story surfaces. And it has to do with the city of Keilah being attacked by the Philistines. Who is in charge of Israel currently? Who has the crown? Saul. What is Saul's primary job? To protect God's people. One of the cities filled with God's people is currently being attacked by the Philistines. Where is Saul? Why isn't Saul doing his job? It should have been Saul and Saul's men going to save Keilah because he has the crown. But it isn't Saul because he's preoccupied with killing David. So who saves Keilah? The true king, David. And this is, this is the second lesson that the story is starting to ask us to consider that David learns. David, without the crown, is doing the job that the king with the crown won't do. Crown and titles don't matter when it comes to leadership. Character is what counts. That's the lesson that God is trying to teach David. David, there's gonna be a day when you're gonna wear that crown on your head. I don't want you to forget the character that was forged inside of you in the wilderness years that will carry that heavy crown on your head. See, if the character isn't what's driving the, the man, then the crown and the title will drive the man, and it will drive the man insane. This is an important lesson for us, because titles, ambition, advancement, raises, these are the things that are presented to us as the things that in this world we should be pursuing. The problem is most of us never consider whether our character is ready for that level of advancement. And the moment you enter into it, it goes to your head and it destroys you and it hurts the people around you. Your character cannot outpace your calling or your title or the crown that's been placed on your head as far as responsibility. If those two things are out of balance, if your power if your status outpaces your character, people are gonna get hurt. The lesson here is that your character always stays ahead of whatever title you have been given in this world. Amen? Okay. Now there's another thing that's really interesting in here that I wanna to touch on just for a second. David, in this story, asks God two questions. He says, are the men of the city going to betray me? The men I just saved, are they going to betray me? And is Saul going to come from Gibeah to Keilah? Is he going to come here? And the answer to both questions is yes. Those things are going to happen. But then something weird happens. Neither one of those things happen. Well, this is weird because now we have an, a, a circumstance in Scripture where we're being told that God is declaring this thing will happen and this thing will happen and then neither one of those things happen. What do we make of that? This is the next lesson God is trying to get us to understand is that our God foreknows all things. Now be careful trying to wrap your head around this. You're gonna pull a muscle. <laughs> he foreknows all things that will happen, and he also foreknows all things that won't happen. 
He sees it all. When we speak of the character of God being omniscient, this is one of those components. He knows all things. He knows every decision you will make, and he knows every decision that will come your way that you didn't make. That's what makes him God. That's what's so magnificent about the character of God. He foreknows all things. And in his foreknowledge of all things, he declares that some things will happen, but not all things. We call this predestination. Ephesians talks about, Paul writes this in predestination, and Paul talks about this in Ephesians. The idea that our God foreknows all things and in his foreknowledge predestines certain things, but other things he doesn't predestine. This is a perfect example. In God's foreknowledge, he predestined some things to happen and some things not to happen, meaning that when he saw, he foreknew that David would be captured and that Saul would show up and that the men would give, he foresaw that, but he didn't predestine it because David made a choice, left the city, and those things never happened. But in the same storyline, there are some things that are predestined that you can't change, meaning Saul losing the kingdom. You remember that story just a couple chapters ago where Samuel and Saul are having this conversation and Saul goes to grab the corner of Samuel's robe and it rips and Samuel turns around and says, the way that you just ripped my robe, that's how God's gonna rip this kingdom away from you. And God is not a man that he would regret or lie. When he says a thing is going to happen, it is going to happen. There is not a single thing that Saul could have done to stop the dismantling of his kingdom. It was destined, wasn't stopping. So this is fascinating because what we're being shown here is that our God predestines, in, in his foreknowledge, he predestines some things to happen and then some things he doesn't predestine, he foreknows all the opportunities that will happen and he leaves these up to our choices and based off of the choices that we choose, he knows the choices that we're going to choose. But then there's another weird part to it. We won't get to it today. We'll get to it when we study Kings next year. But in 1 Kings 22:16, we find out that there is, a, there is a, um, a condition where God predestines certain things. He predestines the end of a thing, but he doesn't predestine the means for how that thing is going to take place. There's a story in 1 Kings where God has, he calls his divine counsel together and he says, all right, angels, I have declared it is time for Ahab to die. I've even picked the date on my calendar. My question to you is, how's it gonna happen? And one of the angels steps forward and says, we send a lying spirit to Ahab's prophets and we tell them to go into this battle and that he's gonna have victory, but he's not gonna have victory. He's gonna die in the battle. And the Lord says, I like it. That's my paraphrase. <laughs> go and do it. So God had predestined, he had ordained, Ahab, you're gonna die. But he didn't predestine the means. He left it up to his uh, angelic host. He said, all right, you, give me a plan here. This is the sovereignty of God at work in the way that he chooses to accomplish his plans and the way that he foreknows all things and includes his people, humans, and divine created beings, angelic beings, into this. It is marvelous. So what is he saying to us? He's saying, I want you to consider that you serve a God who foreknows all things, and because you don't, how about you just chill out? Think about that. You serve a God who didn't just make all things, but knows all things. Knows all things that will happen and won't happen. Honey, what are you so afraid of? Sir, what is keeping you up at night? What, I mean, I, I can tell you, it's because you have slipped your rear end into his chair and you're trying to think that you can accomplish the same things he accomplishes, but you don't have foreknowledge. You don't know what's gonna happen and it's scaring you to death because you don't have the power he has and you're sitting in his chair. 
We serve a God who foreknows all things, and we also serve a God who predestines certain things. Here's a couple examples of things that he predestined in your life you didn't have any uh, control over. What time in history you were born. He chose that, not you. Who your parents would be. He chose that, not you. He chose the day at which you would expire this earth. There are certain things that God has predestined in your life, like like the gifts that you have. I don't care how many singing lessons I take. I'm not gifted with that. I didn't choose how tall I would be. I didn't choose how, how poorly I am at sports, how poorly I perform at sports. But he, he, he chose that. I didn't choose my particular giftings. He put those in me. And, I don't, and, and look, uh, people in your life have told you, man, you can be anything you want to be. No, you can't. <laughs> there. I, I just took a lot of weight off of your shoulders for some of you. <laughs> like, you could be anything. No, you can't. You can't be anything. There are certain gifts and talents and and things he put on the inside of you that you just aren't going to get any other way. And the way that he has created you is beautiful, and you need to rejoice that he, in his foreknowledge, predestined you for specific things and not other things, and go ahead and just be okay with that. The moment you do, you're going to start living a happier life. Just trust me. The moment you accept that he is all-powerful and he has made decisions in your life that aren't up to you, The only thing you're supposed to be doing is living in them obediently. Your life is going to transform. All right, so let's move on to 1 Samuel 23. Uh, Troy, will you cut the air conditioner off for me? Freezing? Some of you are like, huh? Oh, some of you are like, don't cut it off? It's cold? Okay. Well, I'm in front of these heat lamps, and like I'm getting goose flesh. So... That's the thing about Red Hills Church, like, you, like, like bring a jacket. It's just, it's never going to, wear a tank top and then bring a jacket. You'll be prepared for anything. Except for a guy. If you're a guy, don't wear a tank top to church. <clears throat> All right, 1 Samuel 23, let's go to verse 14. It says, so David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. And so David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, to, uh, seek his life and David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh, and he strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, he's not going to find you. And you will be king over Israel, and I am going to be next to you. Saul, my father, knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Okay. Now, this is an interesting thing, because it's kind of a turn of events. The last time we saw David and Jonathan together, we thought this is the last time they were ever going to see each other. They're crying over each other. They're, they're convinced, like, oh, I'm never going to see you again. Like, just go your way, and, and you know, God's going to do his will, and he's probably going to take my life, because I'm, I, my... I'm, my family wants you dead, and God's going to kill your enemies, and, and all this stuff, and there's all these tears. And all of a sudden, at one of the most crucial points of David's lowest point, all of a sudden, you find Jonathan shows up, and he comes and he brings an encouraging word to David, and it helps sustain him. The thing is, is that the encouraging word that Jonathan brought to David, none of this stuff is actually going to happen. He says, my father's never going to find you. Well, in the very next chapter, yes, he will find him. And then he says, I'm going to stand at your side when you're king. No, that's not going to happen. Jonathan's going to die. So the point of this passage, what the author is trying to get us to understand, is the value of a word of encouragement in the right season. The value of friendship and encouragement while you're in the wilderness. Some of you in here are in the wilderness, and you understand the value of someone just giving you an encouraging word. It's like a cold glass of water while you're wandering through the desert. And isn't that fascinating, the way that God works? How he can take 
the power of someone's speech just giving you an encouraging word and turn your entire day around. And if we can understand that, then we can start stepping into the invitation God has for us to be that person that shares the encouraging word. That's the lesson here. Don't take so lightly sharing encouragement to one another. If, if the Holy Spirit brings to your mind, man, send this person a message. Just let them know how much they mean to you. Let them know I was thinking about you and praying for you. And then you think, wow, that's stupid. I'm not going to do that. No, it's not stupid. And if you don't send that message, you're robbing that person of encouragement. And so on both sides, if you're the person that needs it, don't despise the value of getting close to people in community and having people close enough that can share those encouraging words to you. And also, if you're the person who's being prompted by the Holy Spirit to share the encouraging word, don't blow it off like it's not important. It is valuable. You don't know what people are going through and how valuable a word of encouragement can be in the right season. And let's go to verse 19. This is in the Ziphites, went to Saul at Gibeah, saying, oh, we've got another group of people selling out David. Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Haresh, on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Again, delusional. This guy's using the name of the Lord as a stamp to put on all of his wicked, ungodless decrees. Go make yet more, sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and, so, uh, and, and who has seen him there, for it has told me that he is very cunning. So he says, okay, and I, thanks for the heads up, but go and get some better intel, and then come and tell me, because I, I got people day and night coming and telling me where David is. Verse 23, see therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. And now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in Arabah in the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told. So he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. So there's this cat and mouse game. Every time David hears Saul's in the neighborhood, he moves to another cave. And then Saul gets closer, and David moves to another cave. Well, it got to this point in verse 26 where Saul was on one side of the mountain and David and his men were on the other side and David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a message, a messenger came to Saul and said, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Now, this is fascinating because we started the chapter with David saving a city against the Philistines. David was the good guy. The Philistines were the bad guy. That, that's how the story casts it. The author says, you know, David's coming in to save the city against the Philistines. And now by the end of the chapter, the roles have been reversed and both uh, uh, casts have been recast. Now, the Philistines are actually the ones playing the role of, the one, of, of those who are saving David. Isn't that fascinating? The way the story is structured, we start at the very beginning of the chapter, David is crushing the Philistines, and the very end of the chapter, the Philistines are saving David. Now, the Philistines didn't know they were saving David, but isn't that the mysterious way that God works? And that is the thing that the author in the structure of the story is asking us to consider. This is what God is teaching David. Buddy, I work in some of the most miraculous ways that you can't even fathom to imagine. The, I'm playing 9D chess, man. The way I'm working and the way I'm structuring things, I will use the enemy to save you from your other, other enemy's hand. There's nothing out of reach of my hand. And what it does, this story, is it invites us to consider all of the miraculous and mysterious ways that God wasn't just working here in the life of David, but all of the miraculous and mysterious ways he's working in your life right now. 
Now think about this for a second. What this is inviting you into, now this is kind of weird territory, because some of you are just like, that's weird, like, don't go there, but I'm going to have to go there. At what point do you start considering that you serve a God that is over all things? And not just the things that you're comfortable with. He works in mysterious ways, meaning... Is it not impossible for him to open a specific parking spot at Publix that you would conveniently just pull into that then puts you in a situation where your path crosses with somebody that needs a word of encouragement? Is that not like him? But we don't think that. We, th we think, well, I mean, that's coincidence. I'm not going to pray for a parking spot. That's dumb. I'm not going to pray for green lights. I'm not going to pray for things to, 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 uh, to orchestrate in such a way that, that I would be able to just kind of slip in here. No, that's, he's not in that stuff. Is he not? He is working in some of the most mysterious. And who are we to say, yeah, but that's outside of his purview. He's too busy to be working this way. What this text is inviting us into is a much larger world than you are currently living in. God is inviting you to consider that he is over all things in some of the most mysterious ways that you would never consider. And that ant bite that drove you to the doctor that you just feel like is inconvenient might actually be the thing that crosses the path so that you share the good news with somebody that needed to hear it that day. Are you following where I'm going with this? Consider the mysterious ways in which God's work, God works, and don't just stop at considering. Move past considering into worship. Because once you start considering the mysterious ways he works, as you're driving down the road, and you're thinking just all of the things that had to have come together perfectly in order for you to be actually driving down the road. All the things inside of your body that currently have to be functioning. The blood that's being pumped and being filled with oxygen from your lungs. The fact that you need to be breathing and you don't ever think about breathing. The fact that you're constantly blinking so your eyes don't dry out and you never think about that. The fact that as you push the gas, little explosions inside that engine. Or you think, well, man built that. Okay, well, we're either living off of coincidence and man's wisdom or God's providence in all things. There is a way that God's people are invited from Scripture to consider how God is moving in our lives, and most of the time, we ignore it or just consider it, that's ah, coincidence. Is there a such thing? Let's go into chapter 24. Verse 1 says, when Saul returned from, the follow, from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul went to go fight the Philistines. Now David had enough time to run to En Gedi, and he went. Then Saul took 3,000 men chosen out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. I want you to just consider this for a moment, what Saul is doing. He is using the Israeli military. He's using Israeli tax dollars to chase down one guy. Not a king. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way. Sheepfolds are uh, essentially like pens where they keep the sheep right in front of the gates because if, if you've got sheep out in the wilderness, you, you can't just let them sit out and bake in the sun all day. So you've got to have places where they can kind of shelter. So there you find these caves where the sheep would hide in and you create little pens in front of them. Those are sheepfolds. And where there was a cave, Saul went in to relieve himself. This is funny. The Hebrew there says, uh, cover his feet. It's the Hebrew phrase for going to the bathroom. You can use that now, so be right back. I have to go cover my feet. <laughs> so he went into a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And David was there in, with his men, sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So in the very back of the cave, David was in the cave that Saul went in to go to the bathroom in. 
And the men of David said to himself, here's the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as, you see, as it shall seem good to you. And David arose and stealthily, stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that this is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not per permit them to attack Saul. So Saul rose and left the cave and went on his way. And afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. That's a pretty bold move. So Saul finished his paperwork, <laughs> he, walked out of the, he walked out of the cave, and as he's walking out of the cave, David, stricken with guilt, because he's a good king, he realizes he doesn't have any business cutting the corner of the robe off of the current king. He, he steps out of the cave and he confronts Saul as Saul started walking down the hill, and he says, Saul, and Saul turns around and sees David, the man he's chasing. And David said, verse nine, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand into the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. And I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, the corner of your robe, it's in my hand. For by the very fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me against you, and by my hand shall, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? And whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea, I'm nothing to you. What are you doing? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it, plead my case and deliver me from your hand. Now this is interesting because this chapter is a rerun of all of the lessons God showed David in the previous chapter. The lesson about God's mysterious ways working, you're hiding out in a cave from a guy who wants to kill you, you don't think he knows where you are, and then all of a sudden he walks into your cave to go to the bathroom. The mysterious ways that God works. But also the lesson about listening to your men rather than listening to the word of God. The first thing David has to deal with is what his men are telling him. His men are saying, kill him. And then when he comes out and he confronts Saul, he says the same thing that he learned in the previous lesson. Why are you listening to the words of your men rather than listening to the words of God? I'm not your enemy. Your men are spreading lies. But in this rehash of all these lessons that David previously learned, he learns a new lesson. And the new lesson that he learns is that God will not honor people who take shortcuts in the management of his affairs. God has presented Saul with a series of affairs that he is supposed to be ruling over and he is doing a poor job. In fact, he's trying to shortcut and make his entire reign longer. God said, this is going to end. He says, no, nah, I don't know, I think I, can, I think I can work some angles here. I'm gonna take out the guy who you chose to replace me. And then all the while you've got David over here who's deciding, well, if I just, if I kill Saul, then the thing that God promised would be mine will be mine. This whole thing will be over. Two things will be better. Actually, I'll, have to I'll get to stop living in caves, um, and then I'll get to be the king. So David is presented and his, with an opportunity to take a shortcut, and his men are arguing for the shortcut. But David learns a lesson in this moment. God's not going to honor me if I take a shortcut. There are things I need to learn in this long process, and if I take the shortcut, I'm gonna miss those things. 
And there's another thing about the Lord that if those things that you took a shortcut, if you skipped that quiz that day and you didn't pass that test, guess what? That test is coming back in your life later on. And here's the thing, it's gonna be much harder to pass at 42 than it was at 19. Because your body don't function at 42 like it did at 19. And you are now ingrained in some old habits and bad ways that you didn't have when you were 19, but now you have at 42. Now you're a curmudgeon, and back then you were just youthfully ignorant. It's much easier to pass the test the first time he gives it to you. Don't take a shortcut, because when you do, you forfeit the things that you're going to learn in the season. And this is one of the things David is learning. Now, what's fascinating to me about this situation is what happens at the very end of the chapter in verse 16. We see a moment where it seems like Saul is presented with the reality of his sins. And man, what, what would happen if he repented? He would still lose the kingdom. That's coming his way one way or another. But maybe, maybe a different outcome would come. Maybe if he was filled with repentance and really turned his eyes to the Lord, maybe at this moment he could say, you know what? You're right, David. Everything you said is right. I'm going to honor the Lord's desires and I'm going to crown you king in front of everybody. And I'm going to live out my days as a farmer in the backfield and just enjoy that I didn't start, or that I started well. The middle was a mess in my life, but at least I ended well. This is an opportunity for Saul to actually walk in repentance. Let's see what he does. Verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I. For if you repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me. And that you did not kill me when the Lord Put me into your hands. For a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good what you have done to me this day. And behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. He knows this. So swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my ancestors, my my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul is confronted with his own lies, his own sin, and he responds with what looks like on the surface as repentance. And there's a moment of like, all right, maybe he's getting it. Judging on the outward fruit, there's a lot of tears here. So it seems like because of tears in a worship service, things might be changing for this person. But then we find out in 1 Samuel 26 that all those tears meant nothing. He goes back to chasing David and trying to kill him. Which brings us to the final lesson that that God is teaching David in this chapter. You can't judge things by what you see. Because counterfeit repentance is real. And genuine repentance doesn't look like what you think it should look like. I told you I've been reading through this book by Jonathan Edwards. It's called uh, Religious Affections. It's a a book that he wrote during the First Great Awakening. And one of the things he addresses in this book is all the critics that were bringing up their issues of the things happening during the revival. You know, Jonathan, there sure is a whole lot of weeping and crying during the sermon. It's pretty disruptive in the service. Don't know if we're okay with that. All the stuff that it's producing inside these people, it's producing some religious zealots. You know, when they leave the service, like all they want to do is talk about God and all they want to do is read the Bible. We don't know if what, what you're doing there is actually a genuine move of God or if it's just a bunch of stirring of the emotions of the people. And Jonathan Edwards responds and he says, look, a person weeping in a service, could that be a genuine move of God? Absolutely it could. 
There's precedent for that in Scripture. There's precedent in Scripture for somebody being seized by the reality of a living God and being thrown to the ground and they can't move. Remember the guy who came to arrest Jesus? And all Jesus said was, yeah, I am him. Boom, got thrown to the ground. There's precedent in Scripture, Jonathan Edwards is covering this, for people's bodies to have a physical reaction when, the, when they are in the presence of the living God. That is a thing that can happen, but it is also a thing that you can fake. You can fake tears. You can fake falling down. You can fake a devoted life. You can fake that you're a devoted Christian with how much you read or how much you listen to or what you talk about. So how do you tell the difference between the true authentic move of God and a counterfeit move of God? This is what God is trying to teach David. How do you tell the difference? You examine the fruit. Because while you can fake tears and you can fake devotion, you can fake zeal, there's one thing you can't fake. You can't fake fruit. So this is the lesson we're landing on today. There were a lot of lessons today, and I pray that some of them spoke to you. But this is the one that I kind of want ringing in your ear as you leave today. Are we a people that are so familiar with what fruit looks like that you can tell it in other people's lives and you know what it looks like in your own life. This is probably the most important lesson that I could help you with as you're growing in faith. Because without this, without the, the ability to be able to distinguish fruit and know what you're looking for, you will be duped by false teachers. You will be sold things that are not true because you listen to the emotional appeal and the passion of the pastor preaching it, but you didn't examine the fruit. Because if you had, you would have noticed that this guy's character, it was out of line with his title. He didn't do any of the stuff that he was telling you to do. He was manipulative. He was taking your money. He was manipulating your emotions for personal gain. And this isn't just in the church, this is in the world too, but I want us to be aware that it's not just something in the world, it is in the church. So this is the value that the Word of God brings to us today. Man, there's so many lessons here about don't, you don't need a crown in order to, uh, to lead people. Character is what matters. You don't need to listen to the words of the world. You need to trust the words of God. But this, this is an important one. This is one you've really got to get right. You have to become a master at examining the fruit of those around you. Because if you don't look at fruit, if you only look at the outward manifestation of what's happening in people's lives, you will be deceived over and over and over again. Learn to examine fruit in the lives of others, but also in your own life so that you stop lying to yourself about where you are spiritually. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.